restoring God. We come to you from various parts of our home, our community, our country, and even the far reaches of our planet. We come to you from the realities of our individual lives and those shared by a common circumstance. We come to you from a mix of need and want, joy and thanksgiving. We come to you. As we welcome you, welcome us and this gift of our praise, awe, and wonder. While we think through what it might have been like to cross the Red Sea, leave one life behind, muddle through the uncertain, and attempt to grasp a vision of the new, reside with us. Surround us with a cloud of affirmation, presence, and hope. And forgive our unintentional, self-righteous piety and meaningless religiosity, our doubts and our fears, our propensity for distraction and solo performance. Then, O God, Remind us of how powerful life can be when lived in harmony with you, for you, and your people. How much less painful when shared with the lonely, separated, confused, and troubled. How much less stressed when steeped in trust. Then, O oh God, guide us through the muck of the ridiculous and lead us into realms of sublimity. Make us sensitive to the cries of those around us and equip us for the compassionate, difference-making care to which you call us. Inspire us to restorative justice, healing action, responsible change, to seeing the world as you see it and long for it to be. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The witness of Scripture comes to us today from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 29. The angel of God was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other 
all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers at the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let's flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at dawn, the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But... The Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. This is the witness of Scripture for us today. Thanks be to God.
A satirical magazine ran a cartoon showing Moses's mother confused and upset that after his bath, young Moses was just as dirty as he was before his bath. The next panel showed why. Every time Moses got into the bath, the water parted to either side of him <laughs> and he sat in a dry tub. The same joke applied to the bowl of soup he was eating, with the broth running to the sides of the bowl, leaving the noodles in the middle for him to eat. Or perhaps it's not humor that comes to mind. Maybe it's the scene from Cecil B. DeMille's epic, The Ten Commandments, of Moses, muscularly played by Charlton Heston, arms outstretched and the waters of the sea roiling up on either side of the screen, allowing our ancient ancestors to pass through on dry seabed. Whether it's humor or cinematography, both images convey what is beyond our mind's ability to conceive and attempts to explain such events while understandable are not necessarily all that helpful. However, we recognize that while the story of the sea parting is beyond our conceiving, it is not beyond our experiencing. There's a truth to the story that transcends fact. For we recognize that we are currently living in a time of passing through. A time when the former ways of living are being scrutinized and revealed and a new way of living is not yet determined. Which means there is something of a wilderness awaiting whose outcome is uncertain. There is to one side of us the roiling waters of pandemic, and there is to the other side of us the roiling waters of racism. And whether or not we want to be going through this or even recognize that we are going through this, the question at hand is, where are we in the story? The Hebrew ancestors fleeing oppression? the Egyptian army threatening the oppressed, or perhaps caught in an uncomfortable place between the two. We might not be able to conceive the scene, 
but we are living the experience. Paramount Pictures image notwithstanding, we know that Moses was not always the swashbuckling Heston type. He had his doubts about this entire enterprise with God. Our best assessment is that it had been about 400 years that our Hebrew ancestors had languished under the boot of Pharaoh's oppression. The quota for bricks only grew more oppressive, the heel of the empire only more stifling. This little ragtag group without an army or any kind of power had no reason to hope for anything more than a life of degrading submission, bought and sold as property, objectified, abused, dehumanized. Enter Moses, who had nothing but objections to God's calling. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who are you that you are sending me? Who, who, how, how can I even convince these people to follow me when I have a hard time getting out a complete sentence? While Moses' objections are not convincingly answered, we do learn two critical truths of God. First, God hears the cries of any who are oppressed and will do something about that. And second, God enlists Moses to not only hear the same cries God hears, but also to be God's hands and feet in this world to help liberate those who are oppressed. And we hear God's promise that as Moses does this good work, regardless of how hard it gets and how much opposition there is, God promises to be with him. And it is enough. What ensues are a series of negotiations between Pharaoh and Moses. But Pharaoh, in his arrogance believes he is the only power at hand and that oppression by domination is the only way of ruling so that an elite few are advantaged and a vast majority exists to serve those few. It is the complete inversion of creation's design. And Pharaoh's hardened heart is testimony that his allegiance is to no one other than his personal self-interest and appetite. What is at stake here is so much more than the oppression of one people, horrific as that is. This is about the foundational claim of what kind of power will rule the world and what kind of consequences result. Pharaoh is unmoved, does not listen, and believes he is unassailable. The horror of the 10th plague finally convinces Pharaoh that the Hebrew slaves are in fact not worth it. 
And so in the middle of the night, he gives the order for them to leave Egypt, at which point they hurriedly depart before Pharaoh can change his mind and decide to scapegoat the slaves rather than let them go. But paranoid power does not go quietly into the night. And Pharaoh does change his mind, dispatching his army to annihilate swiftly with the sword the ones he had been annihilating slowly with slavery. It is perhaps a too easy identifying with our Hebrew ancestors that allows us to miss yet another horror in the ensuing scene. While the powerless Hebrew slaves discover a way forward and we would never miss the wonder of their new life, neither would we miss the consequence and ultimate outcome of Pharaoh's logic. In the conflict between God's creation and Pharaoh's chaos, the story reminds us that Pharaoh's world ultimately implodes. It might take 400 years, but that regime ruling by oppression, that regime known for its racial dehumanization, that regime practiced in hatred and fear, that regime centered in maniacal self-advancement will be inundated by the flood of its own hatred, by the flow of its own fear, by the current of its own bigotry, and by the backwash of its own inhumanity. Michael Chan observes, a cursory reading might suggest that Exodus 14 is nothing more than a tribalistic us-versus-them story. But in highlighting the impact of Pharaoh's policies on the bodies of Egyptian soldiers, the story shows that the Israelites are not the only victims of Pharaoh's hardened heart. The Egyptian system of domination and violence also drew Egyptian soldiers into its orbit as enforcers of Pharaoh's will. Years later, the prophet Amos, railing against Israel, who had forgotten its history and had adopted Pharaoh's ways, wrote that God's justice rolls down like a mighty water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Whether at the edge of the sea, or from the voice of the prophet, or in these days of uncertainty. The abiding question is, where are we when the waters flow? With whom do we align? We're in a time of passing through. The waters of pandemic on one side, and the waters of racism on the other. And it is daunting. At times, it is even terrifying.
for any number of reasons. We're tempted, like the Israelites before us, to yearn for life, to return to the way life was, even if that return is destructive. We admit that not knowing what life will look like beyond the waters of pandemic and prejudice is unsettling and frightening, and we are witnessing all kinds of reactions. People do not give up their familiar patterns and established idolatries easily. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Better the devil you know, we say innocently enough. We cannot deny that horse and rider are still at work, not yet having been thrown into the sea. Let us admit that belief in the indomitability of racism has lots of evidence on its side, wrote Will Williman. And yet, if you know a story about the slaves in Egypt, trapped, bound, no way out, nothing they could do to change their situation, who were sent an unlikely leader like Moses, and packing up in the middle of the night and heading out to sea with little more than the shirts on their backs, watching in wonder as God did for them what they could not do for themselves. If you know that story, well, who knows? The question that remains is, where are we when the waters flow? We ponder, as unsettling and frightening a time as this is, that any passing through is also a time of hoping in the God who, as Jeremiah once wrote, is about to do a new thing. For in the face-off between God's creation and Pharaoh's chaos, God is always on the side of creation and renewal and healing and redeeming, and transforming. In her book, All God's Children Need Travel in Shoes, Maya Angelou wrote, there was so much to cry for, so much to mourn, but in my heart I felt exalted knowing there was much to celebrate. Although separated from our language, our families and customs, we had dared to continue to live. We'd crossed unknowable oceans in chains and had written its mystery into deep river. My home is over Jordan. Through the centuries of despair and dislocation, we had been creative because we had faced down death by daring to hope. Passing through the roiling waters gives us the opportunity to embody the psalmist prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a wise heart. It is a prayer asking not for more days, nor even for better days. 
It is a prayer for the breadth and depth of our lives, for becoming the kind of people who are wise and compassionate and merciful and just before the presence of God and in the presence of one another. Perhaps you saw the stunning letter to the editor reprinted last Saturday in the Norman transcript. It came from the press conference of Julia Jackson, the mother of Jacob Blake, who remains hospitalized after being shot in the back in the confrontation with police. Jackson said in part, I'm really asking and encouraging everyone in Wisconsin and abroad to take a moment and examine your hearts. Citizens, police officers, firemen, clergy, politicians. Do Jacob justice on this level and examine your hearts. We need healing. Clearly, you can see by now that I have beautiful brown skin. But take a look at your hand. Whatever shade it is, it is beautiful as well. How dare we hate what we are? We are humans. God did not make one type of tree or flower or fish or horse or grass or rock. How dare you ask God to make one type of human that looks just like you? I'm talking to everyone. White, black, Japanese, Chinese, red, brown. No one is superior to the other. Everybody. Let's use our hearts, our love, and our intelligence to work together to show the rest of the world how humans are supposed to treat each other. Julia Jackson's words remind us, even when we are passing through the roiling waters, we can gain a wise heart. The question is, where are we when the waters flow? Her words, stunning as they are, are not unfamiliar to us. She's describing God's people, wherever they are and however they gather, even and especially as they are the church. As our ancient ancestors were passing through the waters, they were given a second chance a second breath. Ever since that night, when the resurrected Jesus breathed on the frightened disciples who had passed through betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion and all of that during Passover, it has been the church's call, given its second breath, to perform the new regime of Jesus, writes Walter Brueggemann. 
That new regime means the restoration of all human capacity to those long denied a first breath. It is the work of the church to relay that second wind from Jesus to those most short of breath. So, Exodus reminds us, Jesus reminds us, our faith story reminds us of where God is when the days are unsettling and the waters are roiling. The question is, where are we as we are passing through?